We all know there are times when you don't have many choices in who you work with, like when a pipe bursts and you need a plumber right now. But when it comes to your mental health, you should have choices so you don't get stuck with a therapist who can't remember what you tell them every week. To find a good therapist for you, try ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including thousands of mental health providers. We're talking about therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments, either online or in person. I use this, and you should too. Go to ZocDoc.com stronger and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash stronger. ZocDoc.com slash stronger. So many of us define success by what we see being told as success across platforms being um, demonstrated by people who are actually not living those lives and then telling us that they are. And then saying, this is actually what it means to, quote, have made it or succeed or live a good life. But the truth is, if you think about the typical person who gets to a point in their life where they just kind of feel like, okay, it's the classic, quote, midlife crisis, right? And by the way, the midlife crisis is often happening in the 20s now, and then again in the 30s, and then the 40s, and then the 50s. And you ask what's really going on there. A midlife crisis is not a crisis of money. It's not a crisis of status. It's not a crisis of power. It's not a crisis of accumulation. Uh, it's not a crisis of all these things that we're told are indicators of success or life well lived. Midlife crisis is existential. It's a crisis of meaning. It's a crisis of isolation. And these are the things where no matter what. Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Do you hate uncertainty? Does fear hold you back? Do you worry about being socially awkward? If you answered yes to any of those questions, this episode is for you. On the surface, you probably know that fear and worrying about uncertainty and convincing yourself that you're completely socially awkward is going to hold you back in life. Yet, I dare say that most of us struggle with these things sometimes. And maybe, just maybe, the key to a good life isn't trying to rid ourselves of these things. But instead, what if it's about learning how to work through them or cope with them or live a great life despite these issues? My guest today is Jonathan Fields. He's the best-selling author of books like The Good Life Project, Uncertainty, and Sparked. He's also the host of The Good Life Project podcast. His work's been featured everywhere from the New York Times to Oprah Magazine. Jonathan was a lawyer, but he got burned out. Then he became a fitness instructor. Then he opened a yoga studio in New York City 
just one day before 9-11. These days, however, he spends his time writing, speaking, and podcasting about how to live a good life and how to find meaning and purpose. Some of the things he talks about today are the three things that make a good life, how to deal with uncertainty, and strategies for managing our social fears. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Jonathan's strategies and share how you can apply them to your life. So here's Jonathan Fields on how to overcome fear and uncertainty so you can live a good life. Jonathan Fields, welcome to Mentally Stronger. Thank you for having me here. I am intrigued to, about you for so many reasons. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed being a guest on your podcast. Have always liked your book, uh, The Good Life. And so I wanted to talk today about sort of what you've learned. That book's been out for a while, right? Yeah, 2016, I think at this point, yeah. And then you, after that, you started the podcast, The Good Life Project? So the podcast actually came first. We were, oh. um, we started in 2012. So we're sort of like the weird old folks in the space at this point. We started with video and then switched over to pure audio in uh, 2014 when everyone said that was the worst decision that you could ever make. And then um, about to bring back video actually in the year to come. So it's going to be a fun adventure. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So now after all of these years that you've been talking about the good life, how do you define it? How would you define the good life? Yeah. So it's interesting because I've literally asked that question to so many people for over a decade. It's the final question of every episode um, on, on the podcast. And um, there's, I, in the beginning, kind of figured, you know, the answers would probably start to repeat like fairly early on. And I've been surprised at the fact that they haven't. The facts are different and there are different nuances, um, but there are so many different takes and variations and it tends to be so unique to the individual, but there are common patterns and themes. Um, and when I think about living a good life, what I started to distill from all these conversations and a whole like years long deep dive into a lot of academic research as well, running my own experiments, as I look at life, it's having three different buckets. I call them the good life buckets just because it's easy. It's a fun, nice visual. One bucket I call vitality, and that's all about your state of mind and body. One bucket I call connection. That's about the depth and quality of your relationships. And one bucket I call contribution. And that's generally about um, how we contribute to the world, like in a meaningful way. How do we invest effort in the way that gives back to us and also gives something to the world? And when you think about what does it mean to live a good life? It's really my experience that a good life tends to happen when all three of those buckets are as full as they're capable of being filled. And that level also is different for each person. We all have our own lives. We all have our different limitations, constraints, you know, needs, desires, possibilities. And and the capacity of those buckets can often change over time as well. And in fact, all three buckets leak. They're unpluggable and they're unpluggable for life. So the good news, bad news is that you never have an opportunity to just kick back and say like, topped off my connection bucket, topped off my vitality bucket, topped off my, con I'm good for life. I'm going to ride this out. It's a practice of just waking up every day, checking in, like how full does each bucket feel? What needs a little bit of nourishing today? And sort of engaging that practice. So to me, a good life is really, it's paying attention to those three buckets or areas of life 
and being intentional about doing something to fill them on a regular basis. But there, there's a bigger meta part of this. Um, tell me if I'm going too long here. <laughs> no, this is good. This is good stuff. Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, you can't be intentional about understanding how full or empty any one of those three buckets are in any given moment in life. You can't be intentional about filling any one of those three buckets unless until you are aware. Um, and that is a meta skill that I think is maybe the single biggest meta skill for a life well lived is cultivating a sense of both inner and, and outer awareness of what's going on within you and what's going on around you and getting as close to whatever is your version of the truth or clarity as you can, rather than living in a state of semi-delusion uh, or semi-withdrawal or just living in a bit of a, a, a fantasy or a, a trap um, that you've never been able to break free of um, for your entire lives, but never actually being fully present and aware of the moment in the experience in the life that you're living while you're living it so that you can understand where to be attentive and where not to be. Because I think the truth is we tend to think certain things are about giving us the good life, right? Achievement. Or if we're now doing epic things, and you talk a little bit about this in your book, the idea of doing epic things, but sometimes it's not the big shiny things that we think are epic. It's those small moments in life. But I'm curious from you, have you heard over the years from people talking about, gee, I thought this was the good life, but it wasn't? What kinds of things were they chasing? Yeah, it's it's all the mythology that we sort of, you know, often get taught by culture and sometimes by family also. You know, this is the stuff I'm sure you've seen come up, you know, in practice for so many years is we're taught a definition of success that's based on some assumptions that are often handed down by generations prior to us, by your immediate family, by your peers, or these days increasingly by media and social media. Um, so many of us define success by what we see being told as success across platforms, being um, demonstrated by people who are actually not living those lives and then telling us that they are, and then saying this is actually what it means to, quote, have made it or succeed or live a good life. But the truth is, you know, um, if you think about the typical person who gets to a point in their life where they just kind of feel like, okay, it's the classic, quote, midlife crisis, right? And by the way, the midlife crisis is often happening in the 20s now, and then again in the 30s, and then the 40s, and then the 50s, right? And you ask what's really going on there. The midlife crisis is not a crisis of money. It's not a crisis of status. It's not a crisis of power. It's not a crisis of accumulation. Uh, it's not a crisis of all these things that we're told are indicators of success or life well lived. Midlife crisis is existential. It's a crisis of meaning. It's a crisis of isolation. Um, and, and these are the things where no matter what's happening externally in life, you know, if we focus in and say, you know what, that you can't earn my way out of a certain amount. If I have a complete lack of meaning in my life, all the money in the world isn't going to fix that. You know, if I'm profoundly isolated from others, if I feel like I'm not seen, I'm not acknowledged, I don't belong. Um, I'm not appreciated in any meaningful way. All the status, all the toys, all the houses, all the cars, all the fancy clothes, it's not going to make a difference. You're still going to feel the same way. You know, so there's just so much delusion 
that this sort of like the mythology around living a good life or, you know, quote, succeeding or having made it is based around and it gets reinforced in so many different ways that we just kind of assume that this is the way it is. But in fact, it's not like we've known the truth for generations. There's nothing that, that any, anyone in the world of personal development of any form of therapeutic modality of academic research, like we are all largely validating things that we have known for thousands of years, you know, um, yet we want a different answer. And, and that's the thing that fascinates me about just the human condition. We know what makes for a good life and we always have. So why don't we do it? <laughs> and that's true. And in your book too, I was struck by a lot of the chapters are like simple things. Yeah. Obviously we need to exercise, take care of ourselves. We need to connect with our, our friends. We need to make more time for our family. And we do, we, we know these things yet. What gets in the way of actually doing them, do you think? Um, so certain fears, I think. Um, and so the book before the one you're referencing was that I wrote, um, I wrote a book on the topic of uncertainty and how high stakes uncertainty for some people, it becomes fuel for all sorts of amazing things and experiences for the vast majority of people having to make decisions or, um, take action in the face of uncertainty as the stakes rise, it's profoundly disabling. Um, and when you really think about this, you know, you deconstruct, well, what is it that we are afraid of? Why does, when people are in fMRI scans, why does the amygdala light up when people actually have to make decisions that move them into a place of uncertainty when the stakes rise? You know, why does it send us into the, you know, the, why does the sympathetic nervous system just say, hey, I'm going to make you feel terrible um, until you do something to sort of like backpedal out of this or race through it or shut down, you know? Um, and a lot of the fear around this is that the fact that we live in a world that is perpetually uncertain. The only thing that I know for certain in life is that life is uncertain. I can never change that. I can do little things here and there to try and make short amounts and uh, you know, a little bit more certain. But at the end of the day, the unknown is the fundamental quality of life. And suffering comes from the fact that we spend the vast majority of our lives trying to lock down the unlockable. And that leads to enduring suffering rather than saying, there are certain things. That, okay, you know, I, I, can, I can get a little bit, I, I can touch stone here. I can drop a certain anger here. But there are a lot of things that I'll never be able to do, including really big, profound questions. What if instead I invested more of my energy in not trying to lock down the unlockdownable, but skilling myself in practices that would allow me to have more equanimity and ease in the face of the truth that I can't do this? So when we are invited to step into a space of uncertainty and the unknown, though, circling back to your question, um, we tend to have this fear response. And what is the fear? The fear is um, fear of failure, fear of um, judgment, um, fear of being outcast. They all tend to conflate down to belonging. This is a really fascinating experiment that was done. There's a um, decision theorist, Daniel Ellsberg, who um, actually became known in popular culture as like the original WikiLeakers back in the Pentagon Papers days. But what a lot of people didn't know is he was actually a really brilliant um, decision theorist who did this experiment that became known 
eventually is the Ellsberg paradox. So imagine, if you will, that, that I'm standing in front of you and I'm holding two jars and one jar has a hundred marbles, 50 black and 50 white. You can't see inside the jar, right? They're, they're sort of opaque jars. The other jar has a hundred marbles too. And it's some blend of black and white, but you have no idea. It could be 99 black and one white. It could be 50-50. It could be just completely random, right? So one hand is 50-50. You know that for sure. The other hand, same number, but we have no idea how many are black or white. Now I say to you, here, here's, here's your task. I want you, you're, I'm going to ask you to pull a marble out of one jar. And then you're going to have to wager a bet to tell me whether it's going to be black or white. And the bet is your entire life savings. So the stakes are high here, right? So this is not something you're, you're just going to kind of like blow off because it doesn't feel like it, you know, it, it's not a big deal. And then I say, which jar do you want to draw from? Right. So if I ask you that, which jar are you drawing from? Yeah, I guess I go for the 50-50. Okay. So the question is why? Um, I guess because there's some certainty, right? I know there's at least a 50% chance of success. Exactly. So this turns out, this is one of those math questions that we all hated in ninth grade where like, right. the answers were like A, B, C, D, or E, and E was not enough information. Um, we actually don't have enough information to make a rational choice here. So there's no way for you to know what's the better choice. It's, you just don't know. You don't have the information you need. But the vast majority of people choose the 50-50 version, not because it's a better choice, but just because they know they're more certain about what the distribution is there. Um, so we tend towards always the option that is more certain in life because when we move away from it, especially when the stakes are high, um, the uncertainty, the fear of judgment, the fear of failing at that choice, the fear of being outcast goes really high. But here's the fascinating thing about that experiment. There's a later version of it done. And this version basically said to people, you choose, but you don't have to tell anyone. Nobody's ever going to know what your choice is. So this is completely secret. You know, like you're in a, you're in a, in a room where you make the choice, but you write down on a piece of paper, like what it is like whether you're going to choose this jar or the other jar, but nobody will ever know what your choice is. Do you think that changed anything? Yeah, I'm going to guess it did. Yeah, so you're right. It almost entirely eliminated the bias towards the certain option. So what does that tell us then? What it tells us is that it's not necessarily that we are wired to basically have fear responses to uncertainty. We're wired to have fear responses to uncertain options where we have to make a choice and that choice is going to be known to others and we fear we're going to be judged and outcast if we make the wrong choice. So the social wiring is actually the really powerful part of why we do this. And, and that really gets back to like the original question, which is, why don't we do a lot of these things? And so much of it is because we have this fear of stepping into the unknown. Like we, we would choose a known suffering over an unknown potential. Most of us actually make that choice, oddly enough. Um, and a big part of why we make that choice is not so much fear of failure. It's fear of being judged for having made the wrong choice if it doesn't work out. I first gave AG1 a try because I started taking my health more seriously. I started running and hitting the gym and paid a lot closer attention to my diet. 
But the more I learned about improving my health, the more overwhelmed I felt about what supplements to take. There's so much information out there about vitamins and supplements, and a lot of it's conflicting. But once I found AG1, I saw how I could support my entire body with one simple drink per day. Since drinking AG1 daily, I felt more energized and I recover from workouts faster. And an added bonus is I feel more focused throughout the day too. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's also simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here's your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash mentally stronger. That's drink. AG1.com slash mentally stronger. Check it out. Do you want to get high quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? Try ButcherBox. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, mentally stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass fed beef free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan, or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com stronger and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com stronger and use code STRONGER to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Isn't that interesting? And I'm somebody, like, as a therapist, I work with so many people who will struggle with uncertainty. Do yeah. I take the other job or do I stay where I am? Do I move to the new city or not? From the outside, it often feels like, you know, just, just take the leap or, or not. Either way, like, you'll probably be okay, fine. Yet in my own life, like, I'm the kind of person who will skip to the last page of a book <laughs> so I can see how it ends, and then I can enjoy reading the whole book because right, there's right, no right. uncertainty. Yep. So it's interesting how when we see other people wrestle with it, we think, well, that's not really that tough of a decision. Yet in our own lives, we do wrestle with those things. And then to know that how much of that often hinges on the fear that somebody will judge us or that will embarrass ourselves. So knowing that, what's the solution to this? Well, so you can't entirely remove yourself from, you know, like a social environment. You know, like in fact, we are social beasts. We thrive, you know, and, and granted there are different levels of thriving. I'm, I identify much more on the introverted side of the social spectrum. Um, so I'm, I'm really good. I love conversation, but more intimately and, and less often and with a smaller group of people. But either way, like no matter how you're wired, like we are social beings. Um, we tend to really thrive when we're around other people. But part of the work is actually in rewiring your response to sort of like disconnect it from social judgment. And and part of that is also first being aware of what your your default response is. You know, so if you feel like 
well, you know, you, you, you got a decision. There's a new job opportunity. Maybe it's a new team at work, or maybe it's, maybe, you know, you're a parent at home and you're being offered a position in the local school board or something like this, but you know, there's, there's a cost to it and you're going to be away from this or that, whatever the decision may be. Um, I think first it's about understanding like what is really being asked of me? Like what, what, what are the stakes here? Um, can I quantify any sort of probability of this being a good or a bad decision of it, like landing well or not? If it's a bad decision, how would I recover from that? Getting really objective about that. But I think the really big thing here is because we're never going to withdraw ourselves. Like there's no opportunity, there will be no scenario where you can say, if I do the, if I choose wrong and the stakes are reasonably high, I won't be judged. I know I'll be a hundred percent fine. There are ways to kind of tell yourself, like, I just don't care anymore. You know, like I have zero to give <laughs> any, anymore. Um, and there, there are for sure some people who are capable of that. That is not most people. <laughs> most of us really do care. You know, we want to be seen and we want to be held and we want to belong. Um, sometimes not to the right communities and groups of people, but we have that need. It's biological. You know, it's the middle of, of Maslow's hierarchy. Um, but in my mind, one of the most powerful practices that we can all do is some form of um, meditation or mindfulness training because it gives us sort of like three different skill sets that help in this scenario, but also in any other scenario. One is it trains you to become aware of what's happening in the present moment. Um, the other one is it trains you to intentionally drop a, a destructive storyline. You know, so it says, okay, so here's what's happening in the current moment. Then it, my inner awareness says, this is the story that I'm telling about it. And then I can kind of ask myself, is that helping me or hurting me? Um, and then I can choose to drop the storyline. So part of a mindfulness practice in particular, it's not just about focusing your mind. It's about being attentive to whatever your mind is actually paying attention to. Inquiring in a moment and saying like, well, look, let me, can I drop this? and just return to the present moment. And that practice over time, it allows you to sort of like meet those moments where fear comes, fear of social judgment comes. Identify them not necessarily as the truth of the moment, but a story that you're telling yourself that is paralyzing rather than mobilizing. And then be, make an intentional choice to just drop that and come back into the present moment. And I like that because when you're in the present moment, you can't worry about the future. You can't be worried about whether you're going to say something stupid and people are going to judge you for it. And you can't rehash that thing that you did last week that you're still kind of embarrassed about. Instead, it brings you back into the moment. And another thing I really appreciated that you've shared is that you used to think like I'm somebody who can't make conversation or I'm kind of awkward in social situations. And you found that you could accept, yes, I'm quite introverted, but at the same time, the more I tell myself I'm not good at conversations, then I'm not going to be. I'm going to struggle with it. So you figured out ways to deal with that so it doesn't feel quite as uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, so I have made a substantial part of my living for nearly a dozen years co-creating conversations with strangers. And right. often conversations where we go very deep, very quickly, and they talk about things they've never talked about. And sometimes it's some of the highest profile people in the world um, who like they have been trained for years and years and years to be quote on message. 
And right. yet something happens where they choose not, they choose to let go of that and get a lot realer. Um, and you're right, you know, people, I literally was talking to somebody the other day and, and I, I happened to share that, you know, like, yeah, actually, you know, I feel I'm pretty strongly introverted. And they're like, how, how can that even be possible given what you do for a living and have done for so long? And it's because I have created a container to actually operate in that mode that serves me really well. You know, so that rather than hosting really big giant events, which we've also done, um, we, you know, I, I show up a couple of times a week. It used to be for six years in our own studio in New York City, where like we would sit down, where I created the environment, I created the container. Um, and we would just have these really powerful, intimate conversations in a, in a one-to-one way that happens to be super nourishing for most introverts. Now, like most of that happens in the remote space. For five years, we ran an adult summer camp for four days at the end of every summer where we would host about 450 people from around the world in, in a kid's summer camp after they all went away and they kind of fumigated the place. And this was like four days of literally 24-7 nonstop, like just incredible programming, incredible human beings. The conversations often were the conversations like that went till three or four in the morning lying outside watching the stars, you know. And it was a stunning experience, but I also knew for me to be okay through that experience that I needed my team to actually play a particular role for me to actually stay healthy and functional um, through that entire four-day window. And we happened to surround ourselves. Like we picked a team of people who were largely raging extroverts. Um, so they were being completely filled up the whole time and creating a buffer for me to step into it in a way that was actually healthy for me. I like that to find that combination of what to accept. This yeah. is me versus what can I learn? Because clearly you studied conversation, learned skills that have helped you get to where you are today because you knew, yeah, I can enhance these skills, but also I don't need to change my personality or apologize for who I am. Yeah. And, and it's interesting also because I think a lot of introverts spend their lives apologizing for the fact that yeah. that's the way that they're wired. I mean, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, I think exploded so big and so powerfully because she literally spoke to a third of the population and said, you're actually not broken. There's profound giftedness and power um, and, and grace in the way that you're wired. And it can show up as an incredible asset in your life and work and relationships if you understand that there's actually nothing wrong with you um, and that you can build around that in a way that supports it rather than trying to fix something that's actually not broken. Yeah. And as a therapist, so many people come into my office like with these stories they've told themselves, like mm. I'm, I'm too awkward. I, I can't possibly do these certain things in life because yet sometimes it's about accepting, no, this is who you are and that's okay. And how do you work around that? Yeah. Can I ask you about that word awkward? Because I, I, I'm guessing you probably hear that a fair amount. And I feel like that's, that is a word that I've heard bandied about a lot more. I feel like the last five years, like uh, people are sort of identifying or saying like, I feel this a lot more. I'm curious what your take is on that. Yeah. So I think people will say like, I guess there's, when they use the word awkward, there's a couple of things. Some people say, I feel awkward. Some people say I'm socially awkward. So like other people look at me funny and they interpret it slightly, I guess in a slightly different way. And often the assumption is everybody else feels cool, calm, collected in social situations and I don't. So therefore there's something wrong with me. And then there's this whole scale of when it comes to the social awkwardness of, am I a little shy? Do I have social anxiety? Might I be neurodivergent? Perhaps I have poor social skills or maybe it's inherently something I'm dealing with. 
but when people declare, yes, I'm an awkward human being, sometimes they think that that's, uh, that's fixed, that they can't change it, that they're going to always avoid certain things in life because they're awkward versus I've seen some people who just accept, yeah, I do some weird things or I, I misconstrue conversations and that's okay and I'm just going to go with it. What's your take on it? Yeah, I, I feel like um, I often wonder whether social media has so normalized um, a certain way of being that it made anyone who falls outside of those parameters feel like they're not okay. But I also feel like there's a pendulum that's been swinging back lately. I feel like in a, like awkward is kind of becoming cooler. Yeah. Um, goofy, dorky, awkward, you know, like I don't fit in. Actually, people are starting to embrace it more. And I think in part because, you know, who are the primary drivers of attention in social media? You know, it's Gen Z and now it's like Gen Alpha um, underneath them. And, you know, um, they tend to be much more comfortable just showing up um, as, as themselves. I'm Gen X, you know, like we never were. We were like, here's the box, fit yourself into it. <laughs> you right, know? right. That's just the way it is. And I feel like younger generations are actually getting much more comfortable with that. Um, but I feel like that pendulum is just starting to swing back that way. I think there was a huge amount of conformity to like, this is the norm on social. And this is how we show up. But now I, I, I kind of feel like that's, there's a correction that's starting to happen and a rejection of that, that I, that I feel like is healthier. Do you, are you seeing that at all? I am. I absolutely agree that for so long, I think there was that pressure to always be as polished as possible or to apologize for a social blunder that perhaps nobody even noticed or to apologize for being yourself. So I certainly see that where people are like, no, this is me and I'm showing up like this. And I think that's a wonderful thing too. Yeah. I think we're, I have no doubt, like the things that made me weird as a kid. Um, my, my nickname in sixth grade was Freaky Feels. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the things that made me weird as a kid, um, as I've embraced them later in life are the things that make me different in a way that actually... Um, people are, certain people are drawn to and the right people will be drawn to that, you know, and I think just people are drawn to, to others who don't hide. Yeah. You know, and if that means that not hiding means that you're, you know, wa waving your, your freak flag a little bit or just showing you're weird or like being kind of awkward, that the fact that you're actually comfortable in your skin with that and, and just being okay with it, I feel like is so is so just appealing to so many people um, that it's, you start to realize at some point, you're like, oh, actually I can be this way. And right. not only is it not hurting me, but it's drawing the people that I want to be with more into my orbit. And the stories that we sometimes tell ourselves that aren't true, you could have grown up thinking I'm too freaky to be somebody who would be a public figure because nobody would appreciate it. I grew up incredibly shy. Mm. And now people are like, when well, you talk for a living, like how did that come to be? But for most of my life, I believed I didn't have anything valuable to say or that if I did say it, nobody would listen. So, and I really only unlearned that once I started doing it and had this opportunity, but it's tough to unlearn those things that we thought of as kids were uh, things that were going to hold us back. And then to learn as an adult, actually, those same exact things can be your strengths. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, taking social risk is not easy. Right. <laughs> but it's but it's so worth it. You know, it's like you're uncomfortable for 30 seconds, but that might open up the next 30 years of just possibility and connection. And I love the story about 
your daughter and the hearts that she drew mm. and how that's helped you. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, um, so part of what I do is speak for a living as, as well. Um, and, um, especially in the early days, uh, I was more nervous, you know, um, I, I wasn't somebody who was comfortable stepping on stage and just kind of owning it and being relaxed and, and trusting that whatever needed to happen would happen. Um, and I was heading out to uh, give a talk, which was back then, it was, I think, the biggest talk that I had given um, was in front of 500 people in an event. And I was the closer for the event. So there's sort of like the expectations were high. I had to bring it home. Um, it was a, a friend and colleague of mine who was running the event. So I really wanted to do right by them. And um, I was semi-terrified, <laughs> you know, heading into it. And I, and I left and I went there and... Um, and before I left, um, my daughter, who was very young back then, you know, I can't remember how old she was in single digits, you know, um, she, she gave me a little gift and she just took a piece of paper and she took a bunch of different colored markers and she drew little hearts, like sort of like one inside the other concentric hearts. And I, I took it with me, just kind of figuring like, you know, like, cool, like this, this will remind me um, what really matters. And, and as I was preparing to get up on stage, I, I was feeling pretty uncomfortable. I was feeling pretty nervous. Um, and I realized that I had that piece of paper with me. And um, when you go up on stage, often when you speak, there's something called the confidence monitor on the front of the stage. There's a little monitor kind of like down low on the stage that holds what slide is going to be up on the screen behind you so you can glance at it. And um, I didn't have any slides or anything like that. But as I walked up, I got on stage and I took out the little piece of paper and I just... I set it onto the confidence monitor because that was all that I needed to see. Um, and at the end of the, the talk, thankfully went, you know, really well. Um, at the end of it, we had a bit of a panel where like, uh, you know, a whole bunch of speakers came up and we were talking about experience. And um, I can't remember the exact question, but somebody asked a question at the end of all the panelists, um, which was, you know, like what, what was deeply meaningful to you or what, um, what did you take away from this? And, as I'm, I was the last person on the panel and people are asking, they're, they're giving their answer, giving their answer. And the whole time I just keep looking at the little piece of paper with hearts. And as the mic got past me, I couldn't speak. Um, and I just got up and I walked over to the confidence monitor. I picked up the piece of paper and I held it high in the air. It kind of like showed the audience what I'd been looking at the whole time. And I just said this, I said, this is all that matters. This is all that matters to me. This let me know that dad could have showed up on this stage and gone off the rails, said goofy things, completely forgotten my lines, tripped off the front end of the stage, whatever might have happened. But I was still going to come home to the kid who gave me this piece of paper with these hearts on it. And that's all that really mattered to me. And that really grounded me. And I carried that paper for years every time I spoke. So um, it was sort of like my, my totem, <laughs> you know. I love that Story, because I think for anybody who is afraid of taking some kind of a risk, like sometimes just having something that reminds you like what's important in life and, and why this is all worthwhile or why you should take the social risk or why you should do that thing is so important because it helps change their perspective. Yeah, totally. There, there's one other practice that I actually came to start doing when I speak, which, which really shifted things too, which is sort of along those lines, which is when I'm in the 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 room that usually speakers hang out just before they go on stage is often called the green room. And there's pretty much always a piece of paper. There's often a flip chart or a whiteboard or something back there with markers. And I got into the habit of just before I went on stage and the few minutes before 
I would find anything I could write on and I would write the words, I'm here to serve. And what that did is it flipped my frame because instead of it being about me, how am I going to perform? How am I going to be judged? Like how, how, you know, like, am I going to rise to the standards that I hold for myself? It just completely flipped and said, this is, isn't actually about me. Like my job here is to go out there and be of service and just to do, you know, like whatever I can do to help somebody. Um, and that, it, it shifted it. So now it did, the pressure came off a lot when I started doing that in a, in a way that surprised me, to be honest. Do you have like a take on why that, that affected me that way? I'm curious. Well, you know, I would say for me, it was a similar experience. I was shy. I never spoke my whole life. I gave the eulogy at my husband's funeral. Mm. In that moment, I didn't care if anybody judged me for what I said. It was about getting the message because same thing, I had something I wanted to say and it flipped the switch. It was about what I wanted the audience to hear, not about whether I stumbled over my words when I said it. And I think in a similar way, when you flip that switch, so it's not like, oh, I hope I don't say something stupid. Instead, you think, yeah, I might say something stupid, but it doesn't matter because I have a message I want people to hear. It makes all the difference in the world. And instead of being um, caught up in my own head, thinking like, oh, did I say that? Or I shouldn't have laughed so hard. Or why did I do this? No, it's okay. It's cool. Just keep going. And so I think for you too, perhaps making that switch in your head, it's not about me. It's about my audience. It's about making sure that I'm here to serve. And I know that you do this because before we hit the record button, I asked you about what you wanted to promote or focus on. And that was your comment was, uh, you know, whatever will serve your audience the best. And I love that because obviously this is your, something that you live by is saying, it's not about me. It's about serving others. And I suspect that's what I picked up on too. When I was on your show a few weeks ago, I've been interviewed a zillion times over the last 10 years by people, but it was so clear that as a podcaster, you were there to have a such an honest conversation and you were mindful. I know you were right there in the moment the whole time and it really shines through. Mm, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. As you're speaking, one other thing sort of popped into my head around this too. And, and I would imagine so many people listening to this conversation struggle with this, which is um, perfectionism, you know, mm. and that, that I think can, it, it can be a huge roadblock to, to living a good life and a huge roadblock to doing a lot of things that we want to do or aspire to. And I'll link it back to just since we're, we're talking about the speaking thing. Um, and again, like my reference point is often large stages or theaters or auditoriums but everybody talks all the time. And, you know, if you believe the different studies, any form of public speaking is the number one fear for the vast majority of people. Oftentimes those studies list the fear of death as number three or four, which is a little mind boggling. But um, when I also started to realize that no matter who it was, whether I was hanging out in a boardroom with six different people or in a strategy or just like with my own team or in a huge theater, that, there was no expectation of perfection that existed outside of my own. And that if I let go of it and just like, I, I focused more on just being human. Yeah. That it, it didn't just change the experience for me. It changed it for the audience. Like I'll give you an example. One time I remember this, you know, like so clearly I'm on stage. I'm about half an hour into an hour long keynote. It's a big theater with a lot of people. I go completely blank. I have no idea. What, like, and, and, and I often don't use slides. So like, I often don't have a point of reference where I can just like glance at something or notes and just get back on track. So I'm just, I'm standing there like on a stage, you know, thousands of people in the audience and there's nothing in my head. 
Um, and before that, it, because that had happened, every once in a while that happens as a speaker. It just happens. It's, it's the reason why a lot of speakers actually use slides because it's a crutch for that. Right. Um, but, and, and I would normally in the past, I would just, I would just start speaking and stumbling and fumbling and hoping and praying that somehow I got the thread back again and that nobody noticed. Something in me this one time said, let me do this a little bit differently. So I paused for a beat. I started kind of giggling at myself. Um, I looked at a, down at a person in the front row and, and I literally said to them, this is like might to the entire audience. I just completely spaced. Where was I again? And the person was like, you're talking about this. I'm like, oh, thank you. And then it just kept going. And that moment changed the entire rest of the talk, not just for me, but for everybody. Because all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, there's actually a human being up there, just like me. He's just showing up and trying to do his best. And he's actually not afraid to show the fact that he's human. And sometimes he needs a little bit of help too. And that like all of a sudden from that moment forward, it wasn't me in the audience, it was us. And that was such a huge lesson for me. I love that because even in conversations with people, sometimes we make a blunder or we forget something and you try to like cover it up or you uh, do something to, to move it forward without just saying, wait, what? <laughs> Asking a question, saying something. I love that. Nah. And somebody once told me too, when it came to public speaking, they said, there's really three speeches. There's going to be the speech that you plan to give, the speech that you actually gave, and then the speech that you wish you gave. And really in how you decide how you're going to move forward after that. Because yes, sometimes we have a plan. Sometimes it works out. Usually we forget something. You add something in there. Yet the sun continues to rise and set. So you don't have to beat yourself up over any mistakes that you made. You can learn from them, but you don't have to stay stuck when we do make mistakes, whether it's in a conversation with somebody or it is on a big stage. Yeah. I mean, isn't that also the, the beauty of assuming that um, there's always going to be something for you to learn? You right, know, right. Rather than like, I'm an expert, or I'm the person who's gotten to this point where like I am anointed in some way as you know, like, like, what if you actually just showed up and said, I'm like, I'm on a path, I'm on a journey and I'm further down that path than it was a week ago, a year ago, a decade ago. And, and, and I think I've learned a bunch of stuff and maybe gained some skills along the way. But the path like, is, is literally going to be, I'm going to be walking this into my last step. And on the one hand, some people can be like, oh, that's terrifying to me. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's devastating. So I'm never going to actually get quoted there. But then if you flip it around and say like, what an astonishing gift is that I get to keep walking for my entire life. And there's no point where I just like tap out or top out and then, and then wake up the next day and, and have to ask myself, now what? You know, um, it's a reframe that I think can be really powerful. So for somebody who's listening, who says, gosh, I struggle with social situations. I don't feel that connected. Maybe I have friends, but it doesn't go that deep. Do you have any thoughts for how we can develop healthier, deeper social connections? Mm. Um, I'm going to keep referencing meditation because it is like my meta skill that has helped literally every part of my life. Um, it helps you drop the storylines. Like one of the biggest things about like that person, which has been and probably will be me again, in my life is it's not the judgment that you're actually receiving. It's the judgment that you're um, imagining that you're receiving mm -hmm. that becomes so devastating. And that is based on a story that you're telling yourself that actually isn't based on, on the actual fact of the situation. Um, and, and that spirals into 
then sort of like a, a compound of more and more um, awkward behavior. Ellen Hendrickson, um, who you know, like studies um, and has written about social anxiety, it sort of like describes this spiral. At first, you say something that you feel is like a little awkward. Then your mind is like, ooh, that was really bad. Like, I, like that sounded really dumb. And then your mind says, oh, that person just thought I'm really dumb. I'm being really judged for that. I need to say something really quickly to make up for it. But then you say something that completely makes you feel even more awkward. And they're like, oh my God. And then you start to tell the story like, oh, wow, I just dug an even bigger hole. They think I'm a complete idiot now. And like, I don't know what, how, what can I do? And you just create this sort of like social doom spiral <laughs> that is literally existing only in your head and nowhere else in the person, like that other person. It's probably like, whatever, cool. <laughs> right. You know, like they're not, they're actually not judging you. In fact, they're probably not even paying attention to you, <laughs> you know, but you think they are. Um, but um, one of the, the pieces of advice that she gave me years ago in conversation that I loved and I loved it in part because I'd been doing it inadvertently for most of my life and not realizing I was doing it is when you go to a new social situation, let's say you're invited to a dinner party, right? And it's 10 people. Um, you're being brought as you know, like a friend or a friend of a friend. You really don't know any people and maybe you know one person there, maybe you know the host, but nobody else, right? And you're kind of freaking out because you don't like small talk. You're really uncomfortable. You don't want to be judged and feel like you're an outcast the whole night and be like that one person who's sitting at the end of the table while nine other people are having the time of their lives and you're just sitting there like watching the clock and and, and wondering whether you should fake a migraine and running out the door. Um, right. You know, like, so she's like, there's a great technique that you can do. And I realized I'd been using this my whole life, which is assign yourself a role. You don't have to tell anyone that you have a role, but assign yourself a role in situations like that. And it gives you a job to do. And it takes the focus away from you thinking about yourself. So the example of this, and this is what I, I have done so often, is in situations like that, I would almost always show up and immediately be like, how can I help? Now, okay, so it's, it's, it's a kind thing to say, how can you help? But it was actually, there was more of a selfish reason for me. There was a survival mechanism at stake here, which is I was inadvertently assigning myself a role. Often, it was the role of kitchen helper. So that I had a job, I now had an assigned role. I had like something to do um, for that entire experience where, you know, like I was the one who was like setting the table and helping with the food and washing the dishes and talking to people and like clearing the plates and serving. And, um, and what it does is it kind of shifts the way that you experience brand new social environments as I have, well, I'm actually here because there's a job that I have to do. And you're like, sure, I'll, I'll sort of like, I'll make commentary here and there. But my primary job is no longer to figure out how to spend the entire time figuring out how to survive social interaction. It's actually to do this job. And then I'm going to like, you know, like sneak in the social action sort of like in the margins around here. And what almost inevitably happens because you take the pressure off yourself is you end up having these amazing conversations, you know, because you didn't put the pressure on yourself to have to have those conversations. Um, and I remember her telling me like, that was a really interesting technique for folks in that situation. And I was like, I have literally been doing that my entire life. And I never knew that that was kind of like a thing. That it makes complete sense, right? Because when you have something to do, rather than perseverate on, oh gosh, I didn't say anything or I look weird or people are judging me, you're busy doing something. And I imagine that brings to a lot, leads to a lot more natural conversation than just sitting across from somebody trying to think of what do I say next? Yeah, no, it, it was... 
And by the way, I continue to do that. So <laughs> great tip. Thank you. <laughs> now we host our own parties also. So now I have like a legit full-time job for them. That makes sense. So then last question for you, for somebody listening who says, okay, maybe I've been that person that has chased money or I've chased social media likes and I'm doing things that perhaps aren't helping me live a good life. Where do they start? How can they start making some changes? Yeah. Um, well, first ask the question, so how's that working for you? Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Because the answer to that, if you're being honest, is almost always it's not. Um, right. You know, and and I think, you know, like first is just realizing that the metrics by which you're measuring your life and devoting your energy and your resources to are actually not returning to you the feeling you hoped that they would um, and that you want to feel differently. So I think just getting really honest with that, I think is super important. Um, I'm going to keep harping on mindfulness as a practice that I just believe can be so powerful, so many people, and it is now so incredibly accessible. There's no money barrier to it. There's no, literally, there's so many apps. There's so many videos. You can type mindfulness or type meditation into anywhere and you'll find a whole bunch of different guided practices that you can try, different voices, different lengths, different styles, different approaches. Find the one that just would make you say yes to doing it on a regular enough basis so it builds the skill of presence and attentiveness on a regular basis. That is the meta skill of a life well lived. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's not an intervention. It's something that that gets built over months and years. Um, and then, you know, of those three buckets, you know, I would literally ask yourself, you know, like scale up, like just super, super quick check, one to 10. How full or empty does my vitality bucket feel right now? How full or empty does my connection bucket feel? How full or empty does my contribution bucket feel? And almost invariably, one of those is going to be a red flag for you. Sometimes it's all three. But often there's one where you realize, actually, you know, I kind of like the work that I'm doing. Um, and I feel like I'm relatively healthy. Like my mindset is okay. And I, like I, I do my workout three times a week, but, you know, I'm feeling really disconnected from like the, the, the people that I claim to hold really important in my life. And then just ask yourself, what is one simple thing that I can do on this day um, to reconnect with people? Maybe it's, a three-minute conversation in the morning that just either calls or texts or sits down with that person if they happen to be present with you and says, so how are you? Um, you know, so what's going on? Um, bring me up to speed. Literally just taking a short amount of time and sharing your exquisite attention with another being um, is a gift not just for them, but for you as well. Um, I will do something which is kind of fun on a fairly regular basis, if I feel like my connection bucket is running a little bit low, that I call um, text roulette. So I'll literally open up the messaging app on my phone. I will like give it the biggest flick and just like let it spin until it lands, you know, like on a random name. Uh -huh. and, and that is the person I'm texting that day and just saying, really? hey, it, hey, just checking in. How have you been? And you can't, you can't imagine how many fun conversations get started by doing something like that. Of course, if it lands on someone you really don't want to talk to, you can flick again. That's totally fine. <laughs> but, right, right. But um, just a little, th I think people are looking for the really big things, but so often it's the tiny things that make it the biggest difference and that are accessible and available to all of us. I agree. Well, this has certainly been a gift to me to be able to talk to you today. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's been my pleasure. So thanks so much for having me. Welcome to The Therapist Take. 
It's the part of the show where I'll break down Jonathan's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three strategies you can use today. One, work on filling up your connection, vitality, and contribution buckets. Jonathan's done tons of research about what will actually create a good life. He found that connecting with people, focusing on your health, and contributing to the world in some way are the secrets to to living a good life. It sounds simple on the surface, but we all get bogged down or sidetracked sometimes. We focus on money, or we put our energy into negative people instead of the people who enrich our lives. But whenever you catch yourself feeling off, take a step back and consider whether you need to focus on filling up one of those buckets. I like his analogy of buckets because people often talk about balance in life. And when they do, it implies that things should be equal. Like you should put the same amount of time into all areas of your life. But the truth is some things take less energy and some things require more time. So the idea that you're filling up buckets and that your buckets leak sometimes, I think is a really good way to look at it. Number two, create meaningful connection. I think that the lack of meaningful connection is probably one of the biggest problems people are facing right now. We know that loneliness is an epidemic and some people are blaming remote work, but just showing up at the office and being around people all day doesn't solve the problem. Plenty of people feel lonely when they're surrounded by people. Meaningful connections are what cures loneliness and helps us live our best lives. If you're fortunate enough to have good friends and family in your life, don't take them for granted. Invest time into your relationships. Spending time with loved ones will enrich your life. There's tons of research that shows that's really the key to living a happier and better life. I know it's tempting sometimes to to work more or to do more things that help you feel productive, But I think the best thing you could probably do most of the time is just spend time with people that you care about. If you don't have meaningful connections, work on it. Meet new people, join new activities, or spend time with acquaintances that you want to get to know better. And three, practice mindfulness. Quite often people tell me that they don't want to spend a lot of time learning mindfulness because it seems too complicated. But mindfulness is simple, at least the concept is. It takes work to practice it. Essentially, it involves just focusing on the here and now. It's about paying attention to what you hear, smell, see, taste, and touch. It keeps you from rehashing things that already happened, and it prevents you from worrying about what's gonna happen next. As Jonathan says, when you practice mindfulness, it's much easier to deal with uncertainty and fear because you're only concerned with what's going on right now. If you want to learn more about mindfulness, there are tons of YouTube videos about it, and you can find it with a quick online search. And there are also tons of apps like Headspace that can teach you about it. So those are three of Jonathan's strategies that I highly recommend. Work on filling up your connection, vitality, and contribution buckets, create meaningful connections, and practice mindfulness. To learn more about Jonathan's work, check out goodlifeproject.com and you can 
Learn more about his books and his podcast, and he's got tons of free information and resources on his site for you. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to the Mentally Stronger podcast. If you like this show, leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. That's one of the best ways to help us get our show in front of more people so that we can keep making the world a stronger place. If you know somebody who could benefit from learning more about mental strength, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who insists his good life involves owning a solid record collection, Nick Valentine.